Thank you. I don't. I think that's the first time I've ever entered, um, like from the the back of the stage, sort of this grand entrance. Um, much more comfortable just sitting right there and hopping on stage or something like that. That was a little different for me. Um, how many of you are enjoying your time here at Steadfast? Good time. Yeah, I'm glad to be back again to share the Word of God with you. It was really, really a joy the last time that I was here and being able to preach and leave a part of my soul here um, with you the last time. You know, I played um, uh, back in my college days, I played uh, football. And uh, one thing that we would often say um, we, when it came to being ready for the game at the end of the game, we would ask one another whether or not we left it on the field. And what that means is that you just gave your all, you've expended yourself, and there's nothing more that you can give. And uh, preaching should be that way, ministry should be that way. And I felt I have great memories of Steadfast last year, and I preached a message on prayer, and then on Psalm 107. And when I preached those messages, in particular that one on prayer, I just I had nothing left. Uh, I had left it all here. And um, but the great thing about it, whatever I may have left in, hopefully it was picked up by others. And what I share with you in these moments ahead, it will be picked up by you as well. Now this is a little different setting, and a breakout session itself. So a mixture of preaching and instruction. Uh, as we're going to walk through some passages that deal with this theme about uh, the love of God and God's love of self. And it really is a great topic when you think about it for a moment. That sounds to be um, something to be avoided, doesn't it? Because uh, we live in a society, absolutely, that is self-inflated. People are forever living in self-love. Um, self-aggrandizement, if you will, um, self-gratification, if you will. But so when we say self-love, what does that mean? And is that acceptable, um, that there is self-love? Even the scripture tells us in the latter times that is going to be a sign of the ages, if you will, that men will be lovers of what? self And we see that every day, don't we? Whether it be from this sort of incessant desire to take take pictures of oneself um, and to send them to people that really don't want to see you. um, Or whether it simply be in how we orchestrate our lives, that our lives and our schedules are based around us and how we want to live and how we want to move ahead. Uh, We make those decisions as well because we love self. Um, but then when we think about the love of God, God loving self, and God loving self, and it'd be perfectly okay, acceptable. As a matter of fact, I would even say not just okay and acceptable, but it is absolutely necessary that God loves self. And why does God love self? Um, well, we think on his creation, and, and God loves his creation, that which he has created. But God did not create self. God is simply the great I am. And God has a love of self, I believe, because God is a God of perfection. 
So in, in God having an affection for self, he is loving perfection. And that is who he is. And when we think about God's love uh, shown towards us, he loves us perfectly. And why does he love us perfectly? Because he is a perfect God. He can do nothing but love us perfectly. We are his creatures and we're fallen creatures and we attempt to love and we should love, but we don't love perfectly, do we? I mean, as much as we may strive to love our spouse the way that we should, we don't love perfectly. The way that we strive to love our children um, as we should, we don't love them perfectly. Our neighbor, we don't love them perfectly, but God does. And God loves perfectly because God is perfection. And the great thing about God's love towards us is this. You, should, you can rest in this reality that God cannot increase in, increase in his love for you. Why? That is, uh, if you've known the Lord like I have, I came to a knowledge of Jesus Christ. And when was it now? Wow, 1983. 1983. So all these many years that I've known God, and he has not increased in his love for me. God doesn't love me more here over three decades later than he did in 1983. Why? Because God does not grow in the expression of his attributes. He does not become better in love. He does not become better at compassion. He does not become better in mercy. He showed his love towards me and he has loved me the same ever since. Now, the only difference being in this, you say, wait a minute, but I, I, I see different aspects of his love. Exactly. What we can understand and what we even experience is very different than what God is expressing. What, let me say that differently. Say, for instance, um, uh, there are truths about God that we know today that we didn't know a year ago, are there not? I mean, the things that we will learn even in this conference, perhaps, that you'll say, huh, I hadn't thought about that before. So you grew in your knowledge of something. The truth was there all the time. Uh, when one comes to groups with, say, for instance, the sovereignty of God, uh, God did not all of a sudden become better at being sovereign, and now you realize it now. Okay, now I see that you're sovereign because I see these other manifestations of it. They've been there the entire time. But our spiritual eyes weren't as mature. They weren't able to see that. Even when it comes to God's love, there, there may be moments when we experience God's love more and we see it more and we read our Bibles and we understand more of God's love. But God's love has always been there. Would you agree with that? Now it's just our understanding of it. It's even perhaps how Paul would pray in Ephesians 1 and Ephesians 3. He's praying that their, the, the eyes of their heart would have a greater understanding. They would grasp more of the love of Christ. But that love was already, that love already had depth and height and length and breadth to it. We just don't always understand it. And we don't see it. And when we think about God's love of self, that's a beautiful thought. God loving self, and it be perfectly right and perfectly pure. You say, well, this self-love. Well, isn't it the father to the son and the, the son to the father? So it's really not self-love because it's the son directed to the father and the father to the son. But it is 
self-love because we're here and the whole theme is about the Trinity, is it not? This great doctrine that, that our great God is in three persons but yet one God. And although we see through Scripture the, the work of the Father and the work of the Son and the work of the Spirit, but yet when they are sharing these affections with one another, they are both sharing it to the other person, but they are also sharing it with themselves. They're, they're loving self. And they love self because our God is a perfect God. And it's even perhaps a certain degree overwhelming to even think about that. God's perfection, God's love towards us. And what I want to do in this time ahead and interact with this topic about God's love, I want us to pay particular attention to the Gospel of John and and just walk through some passages and verses that highlight this reality of God's love of self, and particularly the love of the Father to the Son and the Son to the Father. And we're going to notice as well how the Holy Spirit has a role in this as well, because the Holy Spirit, as we'll pay attention to, is the helper. And that helper has an objective. And that objective is to glorify the Son. And why does the Holy Spirit glorify the Son? Because the love of self generates that. The Spirit wants the Son to be glorified because the Spirit loves the Son The Spirit wants the Son to be glorified because as the Son is glorified, so therefore the Father is glorified because he is the one who has sent the Son to redeem men. So even if the Spirit, his mission is accomplished. I love you, Son. I love you, Father. I glorify you by opening the eyes of men. And then they come to faith and they turn only to Christ. By deepening in the walk of believers. And so as their, their thoughts about you are deepened, Lord Jesus, and, and as the thoughts of the Father are, are deepened, then God is glorified. And that's an expression of this Trinitarian love for one another. To one exalt the other. And we can note it, we can note right away that this love is obviously a humble love. This sense of Within the Trinity itself, thinking of the other. Now, ask your question. Don't you think in society today that we could use a large dose of humility? (laughs) Could we not? I mean, in our churches to be humble, for people to be humble and to be thinking of others. And and that's why it's perhaps even appropriate to mention to you um, in Philippians chapter 2, when Paul says to the church at Philippi, he cries out to them, if you would make my joy complete by being of the same mind and spirit. And he says later on that he wants them to do what? To prefer one another, to defer to one another. And of course, what's the great example that he puts forth? And this sense of you can demonstrate this spirit by following the example of Jesus Christ. And there again is a connection that we'll see as we, we work through this. It's important to understand this love that the Father has to the Son and the Son to the Father and the Spirit to both because they set an example for us of how to defer and how to think of others and how to think about the glory of another and not the glory of ourselves. So what I want to do is first, I want us to look at some passages in John's gospel. 
some passages in John's gospel that will highlight for us this relationship first of the son to the father. First, the son to the father and this love that we have. Now, one thing you'll note is this. If we were to look through the four gospels and this idea of father being highlighted just by way of a search, if you were to search through the four gospels, there's something right away that stands out. Something that you're going to see is going to be emphasized in John's gospel like you would not see in any other gospel. If you were to go through the the gospel of Mark and and you were to look for Father and Mark, you would see Father four times. Then if you were to go to the the gospel of Luke and you you look for Father and Luke, you would see six times Father. If you go to Matthew, this, this great gospel presenting Jesus Christ as this king that would come and, but be rejected, you would see Father 23 times. But interesting enough, of those 23 occurrences in Matthew's gospel, you would note that 17 of those occurrences are in a very condensed area in, God, in chapters 5 through 7 in the Sermon on the Mount. And many of those in the Sermon on the Mount are referring to um, the Father as our Heavenly Father. The Heavenly Father knows. The Heavenly Father provides. The Heavenly Father sees. The Heavenly Father cares. But then we turn to John's Gospel. And 107 times we see this mentioning of Father. And, And why is that important in John's Gospel? Because John, obviously, is presenting Jesus Christ as the Son of God. And and the purpose behind John's emphases is it establishes this eternal, and we might even say filial relationship of the Father and the Son. So Christ is portrayed throughout John's gospel as an obedient Son. And he is sent from the Father's side to bring glory to the Father, which is another way of saying to the Father, I love you. I will glorify you. 107 times, Father, 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 Father. And I want us to pay attention to that, sort of by way of a, a biblical excursion, if you will, throughout John's gospel. The first is this. Turn with me to John chapter 1. John 1. John 1, 14 and also 18, one fourteen says this, And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we saw his glory, glory as the only begotten from the Father, full of grace and truth. Then verse 18, No one has seen God at any time, the only begotten God, who is in the bosom of the Father. He has explained him. So the first phrase that perhaps you may want to write down is this. We see intimate union with the Father. Intimate union with the Father. That's an expression of this Trinitarian self-love. Intimate union. And what is that intimate union? Well, the two verses tell us this. Here he was. He became flesh, dwelt among us. He is the only begotten from the Father. Verse 18, the only begotten God who is in the bosom of the Father. So expressing this eternal um, relationship that they have. But yet, John, with a term that communicates an intimacy and a closeness to it, says he is in the bosom of the Father. 
Now, two things are communicated by that phrase, the bosom of the father. Uh, I believe it's noted, at least translated this way, to capture some of the intimacy involved. But it also is a theological statement that is that is telling us this eternal relationship. The son was not created. Contradictory to those that have deviated in their theology and perhaps some that have come knocking on our door at some point in time. No, there is no creation of the son. He comes from the bosom of the father. Why? Because he has an eternal relationship with the father. And we see that clearly at the beginning of John. And what does it tell us this? Go all the way back to John um, 1. And what does it tell us as um, the scriptures begin in chapter 1? In John chapter 1, it tells us what? We know full well, in the beginning was the word, and the word was with God, and the word was God. But just that, that phrase, we see the self-love of the Trinity, and particularly the Son to the Father, in this phrase, he was with God. Uh, more literally could perhaps be communicated, he was face to face with God. Now, we think about being face to face. Our minds may go back to, if you will, in the book of Exodus. And you remember Moses says he was called up to see this burning bush. And, and as he goes up and he is told to take off the sandals from his feet because the place in which he stands is what? Holy ground. And he sees this manifestation of God in the burning bush. And remember, as the people are going through the Exodus, and Moses would go into the tabernacle, and he would speak to God in what way? Face to face. He would speak to him. And how would Moses come out? And you remember, Moses would have the veil over his face. Why? Because Moses would come out with this glow about him. And in one sense, he had the veil over his face, and perhaps in the, in the same way that a wife or a wife to be would have a veil over her face as she comes down the aisle, and because in one sense it was a, it was startling to the people to see it because he was speaking face to face with God, and somehow it literally affected him even physically. A glow was about Moses. And remember as well with Moses, he he was a man that was. Uh, wanting to see more and more of the glory of God. And he, would at, he asked the Lord in Exodus 32, 33, 34, that he wanted to see his glory. And God says, you cannot see my glory because in, in seeing that, a man would die. And he, la- he allows Moses to see, if you will, his other parts. But he spoke to him still face to face intimately. And the language says he would speak to him like a man, face to face. Um, there have been times, the closest I've ever come to something like that are times when I have prayed and I've gone to my, what has been sort of the back room um, to pray and spent time there. And there have been some occasions and when my wife didn't know I had prayed and she might look at me and say, you've been praying. Really, how did you know? Just something about you. Um, and I, it's not something you can take a picture of and see it. But there's something that happens in a demeanor because you realize that you've been engaged with God. And, and I wish that I could keep that all the time. And I'm, I'm sure that she wishes I could keep that all the time, right? And the other occasions when she's not as pleased with me. <laughs> 
And just like the kids say, Carl, go to your back room. (laughs) But not for a spanking, but maybe at times it is a spanking to let God spank me. Amen. (laughs) When you go and pray before him. Here it is. He's in sweet fellowship with his father and he is with him face to face. God to God. What was this fellowship like? No one ultimately knows. What does God say to God about all that they're going to do and have done? And think about that even for a moment, the eternal nature of conversation amongst the Trinity. Because all of history is settled in their minds. That is, they are not in this conversation saying, well, let's think about contingency plans. What if it doesn't work out with Israel? Um, What if Steve Swartz doesn't come to faith and then there is no Grace Bible Church? What, What if there's no steadfast conference where people can hear about the Trinity? Then what's our plan B? What's our plan C in reference to that? Everything is settled in their mind. And perhaps this conversation, if we call it even a conversation, is simply in how all of this will glorify them and what the Father is going to do when, in fact, he does in time come to redeem men, how that will glorify the Son and how the Spirit will glorify him. Who knows? But we know that it was intimate. And I think we can say we know that it was based on this love that they have for one another that ultimately they would be glorified. See, there was intimate union with the Father. So I'll stop for a moment because I said we need to consider, okay, if there is a self-love within the Trinity, what does that mean for us? Then I would say that there must be intimate union amongst the body of Christ with each other. So in everything, do you agree that when we look to our God, we're looking for an example, are we not? So in all the things that we can emulate, we want to look at them and say, I want to emulate that in my life. And if there is a sense in which we see intimacy between the Son and the Father, then I want to have intimacy with those in the body of Christ, and I want to have intimacy with those in my immediate family to emulate this intimacy and love that I see between the Father and the Son. So in their Trinitarian family, if you will, there is this overabiding and eternal love, and we should want that in our families as, as well, that there is a self-love, if you will, within family. And we as believers in the Lord Jesus Christ, that we can have that intimacy with one another. Why? Because of our union to the Son. And now here's an opportunity for us to emulate this union with the Father and the Son. Isn't it amazing? And perhaps you've experienced it as well. Uh, You go somewhere, and I've been fortunate to travel, not only around the country, but other places around the world, and you meet a believer that you've never seen before, has never seen them, and right away you begin a discussion about Christ, and what happens immediately? Ah, this is my brother. This is my sister. And there is an affection that you have for them that is even different than the affection you may have with the blood relative who doesn't know the Lord Jesus Christ. And you realize there's a, a sense of, of union you have with them that you don't have with others. This love and affection that we have that has its basis in Trinitarian love because we're part of a family. Here's a second passage for us to consider. Look with me to John chapter 3. 
John chapter 3. John 3 says, The Father loves the Son and has given all things into his hand. The second phrase that you may want to consider is this, trusting love from the Father. Trusting love from the Father. So we see here a connection between the authority that Jesus Christ has and the love of the Father. So the Father has given the Son, the Son all things. That is, he has given him all authority. He has given him all judgment. And why? The basis of it is his love and affection for him. A love and affection for him. We think about our relationship to others and how we entrust things to those people that we have a love and affection for, do we not? And the greater that love and affection we have with them, perhaps the greater that we entrust things to them. And of course, he would give the Son all things because his love is unbounding. It is without limits. It is eternal. They have had this eternal conversation with one another, face to face, And now, here is the time that he says, all things have been given to you, the Son. Here's a third consideration about this Trinitarian love, and it is this. Turn with me to John chapter 5. John 5. And John 5, 17 says this. But he answered them, my father is working until now, And I myself am working. And then if you consider, you don't have to turn there, but just note John 10, 30. I and the Father are one. What's the phrase we can take from what we see here in John's account? And it is this, loving effort with the Father. A loving effort with the Father. So now this Trinitarian love is expressed in the effort to bring about the plan of salvation. So notice what he says in verse 17 of chapter 5. The Father is working until now, and I myself am working. And it's simply a statement that we are working in conjunction. So as the Father has sent me to redeem his chosen people, I am in accord with that mission. And his statement in John 10.30, yes, most definitely can be um, used as a testimony of Christ's deity, I and the Father are one in essence, but also I and the Father are one in purpose. We have a singular purpose, and that purpose is to glorify self because we love each other. We love each other. So we see here a loving effort with the Father. How can we then demonstrate this attribute of Trinitarian love? That it is clear that we should then join hands with each other with one cause. And for the Father and the Son and the Spirit, that one cause is that God be glorified, which we're going to see later on. And our one cause in life is that, isn't it? Whatever you do in word or in deed, do it all to what? The glory of God. All that we do. Our very being is is built around that one idea that we glorify God. And we have a privilege that is unique. And we should take advantage of that privilege and see the honor of that privilege that we can live for the glory of God as opposed to our former life, we live for just the opposite. It was the glory of self. Now, we may not have said that it was self. 
We may have thought that it was for other means and, and perhaps we had other motives, at least we thought, but ultimately anyone and all that they do apart from having a saving relationship with the Lord Jesus Christ, they do it for the glory of self. And now we can live for the glory of God. And why should we live for the glory of God? God lives for the glory of God. God lives for the glory of God because he loves self. The Father, the Son, the Son, the Father, the Spirit, the Son, and the Father. Here's a fourth consideration, and it's this. And John 5, just down a couple of verses in John 5 from 17, verse 19. John 5, 19 says this. Therefore, Jesus answered and was saying to them, truly, truly, I say to you, this son could do nothing of himself unless it is something he sees the father doing. For whatever the father does, these things the son does in like manner. Here's your phrase, loving imitation of the father. See, there's a loving imitation of the father within the Trinity. Now, let's pay attention to the phrases in the verse itself. Jesus makes the statement, and truly, truly, I say to you, the son can do nothing of himself unless it is something he sees the father do it. Now, some people have been confused in their theology, and they look at that statement and say, well, that's a statement of the son's inability. It's a statement that says the son cannot, he has no ability to do divine things apart from the father. And that's not the statement itself. What he's saying here, all that I do, he is saying I can only do the things that the father do because I am perfect and the father is perfect. So it is always going to be consistent in our actions and in our goals. I'm bound to him. Therefore, I can do nothing else. That's the statement of John 5, 19. It is not, okay, as if Jesus Christ, he is wondering, what's the next step that I take in this redemption plan? I'm not sure if I can accomplish that, but Father, if you've done it, perhaps I can. No, that's not it. It's we always do things in accord. Now, for us, there's a great application for this in our lives. For us, we do, we seek to imitate God, do we not? Paul even said, imitate me as I imitate Christ um, in the book of Corinthians, in Corinthians 11.1. 1. But also in Ephesians 5.1, let's just pay attention to that for a moment. And sometimes I just, uh, it's just good to look at the text. Look at Ephesians 5 with me. And what does it tell us there? Uh, we, perhaps the setting is easier to establish. Uh, Paul has began in... <clears throat> chapter 4, to give the church at Ephesus these practical expressions of the doctrines that he has taught them in chapters 1 and 3. And he has now, he has made a great statement, and if you go back, if you will, go back um, to, say for instance, verse 30 of chapter 4, where he says, do not grieve the Holy Spirit by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. Let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander be put away from you, along with all malice. And then in verse 32, be kind to one another, tenderhearted, forgiving each other, just as God and Christ has forgiven you. So a clear example of, of imitation, right? So God has forgiven you. Look at the way in which he has done that. 
trace this throughout biblical history and how God is a forgiving God. And you, now, when someone has hurt you, and I believe Paul would be addressing this, and that's why he says that you have to put away bitterness and wrath and anger because someone has perhaps offended you and you follow the example of Jesus Christ. And it's beautiful. Then the next phrase is what? In verse 1. Therefore, having told you to even in this last thought of that passage, to follow Christ's example of forgiveness, and there's no greater forgiveness than he has demonstrated, he says in verse 1, therefore, be imitators of God. That's an alarming statement. You say, well, alarming in what way? Um, it's, It's intimidating, if you will that we can, in fact, be imitators of God. You say, well, wait a minute. If we're talking about um, the self-love of the Trinity, do we imitate God in loving self, loving who we are? No. We imitate God in loving others. We imitate God in loving what he loves. We imitate God in loving him in return. So now we have this great opportunity to be imitators of God. And we see in John chapter 5, the son in this loving imitation of the father is not because he has no ability. It's because I always do the things, I can only do the things that are consistent with him. Because my sole objective is to glorify him because I love him. And that has to be our motivation as well. Do we love the father? Do we love the Son? Do we love the Spirit? Then imitate Him. And uh, it is, you know, it's fun. You think about this language of Father. We already noted how the frequency in the other three Gospels, we had, what, 4, 6, 23. So um, we had, what, 29 occurrences of Father in the other three Gospels, 107 in the Gospel of John, and this theme, Father, coming out so much. And it's good, I think, in so many ways how when we become a parent, we can see things in the Bible. Uh, Fatherhood, you know, being a father of five children. I, I see things going through life as a father that I didn't see before you know, kids imitating you or wanting to imitate you. And when you tell them they see you shaving, you tell them it's too young to start shaving, right? And they come out and they cut their face and you wonder why it's happened. Uh, It's entirely too young. You're too young to start shaving at seven, right? There's nothing there. Or when that, the first time you you see your kids and, and they're trying to walk on your shoes, and I wear a size 13. So they, you know, And and they're trying to walk in their shoes and they're trying to imitate dad. Are the things that you see. And there's also the sad occasion of things that I would not want them to imitate. If I'm to be honest. And praying that they never will. Imitation is a beautiful thing. And for the Trinity, this was a, a loving imitation of the Father. Not an imitation based on inability. It's relational. The fifth consideration is this. Look with me at John 5 again. John chapter 5. And we want to pay attention to verse 43. So John 5, 43. John 5, 43. And what does it tell us? I have come in my Father's name, 
and you do not receive me. If anyone comes in his own name, you will receive him. What's your phrase here? A loving representation of the Father. A loving representation of the Father within the Trinity. Because this is Christ's um, passion. It is his ministry. It is his objective. And we saw that at the beginning, did we not? Um, John 1, 18, what, did, what does it read? No one has seen the Father at any time. The only begotten God who is in the bosom of the Father has explained him, has exegeted him, has, if you will, might, you might even say, has exposited him. And so here in his ministry, that is his objective. I want to explain the Father to you. And why do I do that? It is my loving representation of him. And we as believers in Christ, if we were to apply even this thought to our lives, this Trinitarian love, that is our calling that we're to be a people who through a loving representation of our God, are we not? We represent him in every facet of our life, in every marketplace of life. Wherever we find ourselves, we are his representation, uh, representatives. And that's what we're called to do. And so the son here says, because the animosity of the leaders is growing, if you will, and they would say to him, whom do you represent? I represent the father. And isn't it curious that if someone else came in their own name, you would receive him, but you don't receive me. I come in my father's name. And what's the reason they didn't receive him? They didn't receive him because their eyes were darkened. Because they thought they had a knowledge and they did not. They thought they were free and they were not. And that's why Jesus would make the statement, he whom the son sets free is what? Free indeed. And, and why did why was there judgment on the people of God? There was judgment on the people of God, at least when I say the people of God, those religious leaders at that time, because they thought they saw, and thinking that they saw, they became darkened in their heart. God gives light to those that have come to grips with their blindness. And he gives hope to those who come to grips with their hopelessness. He gives life to those who come to grips with the fact that I'm walking a path of death. So we see this love expressed in this way. Here's a sixth consideration about this Trinitarian love. If you turn with me to John chapter 8, turn with me to John chapter 8, and we want to notice it here. John 8, and then in 49. Forty-nine says, Jesus answered, I do not have a demon, but I honor my father and you dishonor me. You won't have to turn there, but note John chapter 12, verse 27. He says, but now my soul has become troubled. And what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour. But for this purpose, I came to this hour. Note, if you will, John chapter 12, verse 28. Father, glorify your name. Then a voice came out of heaven. I have both glorified it and will glorify it again. John chapter 13. Now, before the feast of the Passover, Jesus, knowing that his hour had come, that he would depart out of this world to the Father, having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. John chapter 17, verse 1. 
Jesus spoke these things and and lifting up his eyes to heaven, he said, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your son that the son may glorify you. John chapter 18, verse 11. So Jesus said to Peter, put the sword into the sheath. The cup which the father has given me shall I not drink. What do all these verses communicate? First, we see in John chapter 8, there is this great animosity that is arising even more so between the religious leaders and Jesus Christ. And they're claiming, yes, he does these miracles. Remember, in John chapter 6, he had done what? He had... He had, he had claimed that he was the bread of life or pronounced that he was the bread of life and he had, he had fed the many thousands. But what's interesting about it, Jesus also says there that if you are going to be my followers, you must do what? Eat my flesh and drink my blood. And it says many of his disciples were no longer walking with him. We didn't sign up for that. We don't love you enough for that. We love ourselves too much to follow you to that degree. And then he comes to John chapter 12. His soul is troubled. But for this purpose, I've come to this hour. What hour? This hour of redemption. Then just a verse later, there's this voice out of heaven that is making a statement that indeed, I've glorified it and I will glorify it again. And even to chapter 18, put your sword away, Peter. Peter responded in the natural, perhaps a way we might respond as well. Because we should always be really fair when we cast judgment on biblical characters, shouldn't we? Uh, have you, I don't know if you've done it, but I've done it in the past. Had I been there, have you ever made that statement? Had I been there, I would have not doubted. Had I been there, I would have kept walking on the water. Had I been there, I would have been um, totally satisfied with the manna that came out of heaven. Had I been there. Well, we're here, (laughs) are we not? And we've had our moments when it's not even walking out on the water. It's just walking across a bridge and we have problems with it. And it's whatever God is providing for us now when we're not satisfied with it. And we really think that we would have been satisfied with manna all those years? And what does Peter do? In the natural, he takes out a sword and he chops off the ear of the servant. Put it away. And notice what he says. This is an expression of love. And this is where a true definition of love is necessary because he says, this is the cup which my father has given me. Shall I not drink it? Wait a minute. Isn't this about Trinitarian love? Doesn't love protect? Doesn't love cover? Doesn't love shield? Doesn't love defend? What love is this that would say to a son, drink this cup? It's a divine love, isn't it? It's an unconditional love. It's an eternal love. It's, it's a love that is so very different than our own. And that's why we, in our lives, strive for following this sort of love. And it all begins with this love within the Trinity. See, why would the Father... Give the son the cup. Well, we know the, the obvious reason that we probably have known since uh, 
even before an unbeliever, that he gave him the cup because the cup was his wrath and he had to take on this wrath for the redemption of mankind. I mean, one reads through, um, of course, the suffering servant in Isaiah 52 and 53, and we see that it was a father's pleasure for all of this wrath to fall upon him. It was a father's pleasure to crush him. It was a father's pleasure to look away from him. It was a father's pleasure that there would be a moment in this moment that they both realized when, when they were in that intimate fellowship with one another face to face, that there would be a day in history, in time, when Christ would cry out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? But he still sent a father. He still sent a son. Why? Out of love. What sort of love is this? What sort of love is this? Yes, it was a love that he would redeem. But the father would send the son to redeem so that the son could be glorified. He would send the son to redeem and to go through this pain and this hurt because of his love for him that he would be glorified so that according to Ephesians chapter 2, every knee shall do what? And every tongue shall do what? Confess that Jesus is Lord to the glory of the Father. It's like a parent, if you will, that you you know that there's a tough road that a child has to, to travel and you encourage them on it and perhaps you even send them on it because you realize if I protect you, you won't attain this goal. I can't save you from this and I can't save you from that. And then when they've achieved it, There's satisfaction. And a million times over, uh, a limitless number of times over, this is what the Father's done to the Son. Here's a cup. But this cup is the means to your glorification. And I love you enough to give it to you so that all creation will glorify you, and I love you that much. So we see here, and I didn't give you the phrase, and the phrase is this, loving tribute to the Father. See, it's a loving tribute to the Father. We see it throughout this hour. Glorify my Father, I shall take. I have glorified it, I will glorify it again. This is this Trinitarian love, a loving tribute to the Father. Let me give you a, a seventh consideration about this Trinitarian love. And it is this. Turn with me to John chapter 10. John 10. What does it communicate? We're going to notice in John 10, 15, great truths. And we know John is communicating in Chapter 10, here is Jesus Christ, the good shepherd. And the good shepherd does what he lays down his life for the sheep. And ultimately, he lays down the life for the sheep that they would be redeemed. And as they are redeemed, then the, the Father, the Son, the Spirit will be glorified through it. Notice John chapter 10, verse 15. Even as the Father knows me, and I know the Father, I lay down my life for the sheep. What I want us to focus on is not 
so much the aspect of him laying down his life for the sheep. But notice what it says prior to it. Even as the Father knows me and I know the Father. Here's your phrase that communicates again this love within the Trinity. Loving an eternal reciprocal knowledge in the Godhead. Loving an eternal reciprocal knowledge in the Godhead. What do I mean by that? Because we've established already that the Father loves the Son. We see that throughout Scripture. But notice what he says in John ten fifteen: Even as the Father knows me and I know the Father, we know each other. And because we know each other, because we are perfection, this has been our order from creation that I would come and I would die to, and I would lay down my life there's this reciprocal knowledge of each other, which is a statement, obviously, of Jesus Christ and his deity as well, a knowledge of each other. And that knowledge is another testimony of them being with one another face-to-face throughout eternity. Have you ever, I know that I have, um, and still in many years, you know, um, I, I came to the Lord in 1983 and known the Lord, and I've been fortunate to be, you know, trained uh, at a fine institution biblically. Um, but there's still thoughts, and I pray that I'll be this way until my deathbed, thoughts about God um, that are just too much for me. Yeah, I, I really do mean it. I never want to be comfortable with my, my knowledge of God. I always want to be growing in that knowledge. Even in our, our time with the pastors, the question was asked about how do we continue to grow as preachers. And I want to be better. And I want to say, ah, I can be better at that. I, because my whole objective is to glorify God. And if that takes away from glorifying God, I don't want that. And there, there are aspects of God when you think about them and, and you consider them and how God is lofty and how God is other than us. They, they seem to be too much for us. Now think about this. The Father knowing the Son and the Son knowing the Father. Perfectly throughout eternity. And because of this knowledge of each other, they're in absolute harmony as to their mission. That mission, to glorify self. The mission, to demonstrate to their creation genuine love. Genuine love. And that's why we see in John chapter 10 even. And let's just, I want us to pay attention to it. Um, look at verse 17, and this even leads us to our next point. Verse 17, he says, For this reason the Father loves me, because I lay down my life so that I may take it again. And that's our eighth point. And here's the phrase with it loving recognition of the Father. Loving recognition of the Father. Because I want us to also consider verse 18. He says, for this reason the Father loves me, because I lay down my life so that I may take it again. No one has taken it from me, but I lay it down on my own initiative. I have authority to lay it down. I have authority to take it up again. This commandment I received from my 
Father. What is the commandment? The commandment is to lay down his life. But it is also this. It is a commandment to, by his own authority, to lay it down. No one takes his life from him. It is his divine prerogative. You say, wait a minute. I've heard that so many times before. I understand that. I get that, that Jesus laid down his life of his own accord. No one forced his life from him. But we have to think about the lofty consideration. That's the backstory to that, which is he does this because the father has said to the son, I love you. And I accept that command. No one knows for certain the psychological, emotional struggle that the Son of God had on the cross. I mean, we will, perhaps in heaven we will understand it, perhaps. I'm not even sure that we will then. The struggle of perfect love throughout eternity, face to face, but yet he would give his life as a ransom for many. And somehow in that darkest moment, all of his father's wrath is falling upon him because it must, because he must be punished for the sins of his sheep. He is forsaken. And he says, but I accept that commandment. I lay down my life on my own initiative. A loving recognition of my father. Here's our ninth consideration about this love. And what I want to do, I'm going to share a couple more points. And I I know this is a workshop, if you will, and not just straight preaching, although I could do it for an hour and a half. Trust me, um, easily. I'm going to share a couple more thoughts, and I'm actually going to open it up to you for some questions. Is that okay? Okay, great. Number nine, look at John 16. John 16. And it says, verse 32, Behold, an hour is coming and has already come for you to be scattered, each to his own, and to leave me alone. And yet I'm not alone because the Father is with me. Here's our ninth phrase, loving support of the Father. Loving support of the Father. In this darkest of hours, Jesus Christ, as he is preparing his disciples for his departure, he has been telling them about beginning in chapter 13, remember the Last Supper, and then he begins to tell them about the Holy Spirit is coming, that he must leave so that the Holy Spirit would come, and it is necessary But the Father, because there is this Trinitarian love, he will not leave you alone. You will not be at a loss. He will send another helper. And important, just that the wording in in the original language, when he says another, he's saying another like me. He will support you equally. And me, and unlike me, he will come and he will reside in you. And I reside in you through the person of the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit will empower you. He is preparing them for these thoughts, that he must go away. And he's told them earlier that as he goes away, he would tell them in John chapter 16, like verses 8 through 11, he says, I must go away. Why must I go away? Because 
The Holy Spirit is going to come and he's going to convict the world of sin and righteousness and the judgment to come. And here's this hour. But what's beautiful about it is this, this loving support of the Father. Notice what he says. It is so straightforward, but yet profound. You are all going to do what? Scatter. And in that face-to-face communication, he was fully aware that in that moment, In Jerusalem, all his disciples would scatter. And imagine with me for a moment. Just pause for a moment and think about that. What love is this? That for those years that he was with the disciples, what did he do for them? Love them. Train them. Prepare them. Knowing that one day they would do what? They would forsake him. But he knew this, that his father would never forsake him. And how could his father forsake him? Because... The Father and I are one. Because what I'm doing is exactly what the Father has commanded me to do. And why do I do it? Because I love the Father. So we see this intimacy between the Father and the Son. I'm not alone. Because the Father is with me. It was interesting as well. I bring into this message even some comments that were made in the time with the pastors and other leaders earlier, and the question was asked about what happens when you're discouraged in ministry. And, and I, I know many stories uh, of men just throughout history that I've known, and they have been forsaken. Even in some of my recent travels, I was visiting some of the alumni from the Master's Seminary, and, and a brother was sharing with me how leaders turned on him, and, and he was alone. And there was a, a fellowship of pastors that he used to work with in, in a given area. And when these men brought these accusations against him, which were unproven, all these men forsook him. He was alone. And regardless of where one may find themselves in life, if they feel forsaken, if in fact they are forsaken, There's always one that's with you, amen? And just like in this moment in the life of Jesus Christ, I have poured my life into you, but you're going to be scattered. I understand that. I prayed for you. You will not fall to the uttermost, but there's one who's going to be with me. And the same way that he has been with me through eternity, he will strengthen me. And remember, Jesus Christ as he was there in Gethsemane and he's, he was praying and Luke tells us that as he prayed and he sweat so profusely, it was like drops of blood that came down. But he wasn't alone. His father was with him because he had an eternal love for him. What about us? We need each other. We need to be there to support each other. Our brothers and sisters need each other. We need a a community where we can be like the Father and the Son and the Spirit. We can emulate this sort of love, and we can support our brothers and sisters in time of need. He got loving support of his Father. And we need to be there for our brothers and sisters to give them loving support in their time of need. But let me say this to you. You cannot possibly offer loving support unless you're connected to people, unless you're available, 
unless you avail yourself. And that's why church is not just a simple gathering. It is a life of people with other people. That is church life. So when your brother and sister is down and out, you can be there to lift up their arms in their time of need. And you emulate this Trinitarian love that we see throughout Scripture. Amen. Let me take some questions. Questions you have about anything that I, I shared at all? That we can? Yes. Uh, see the gentleman right there? Love within the Godhead prior to creation. Are you looking for a definition of it? Yeah. Oh, and while, let me, and not that I don't want to answer it, but let me put it in context. Um, is it something I said in reference to creation because I talked about God loving his creation, having affection for it? So therefore, if we back it out of creation, does that definition change? Sure. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. So it didn't, and that's a great question. And it, I said it in a different way, but I'm glad you asked it that way so I can answer it. Uh, so let's back up and think. God then expresses his love towards his creation, does he not? He expresses his love even towards the unbelievers. There is, there is a... a um, a creative love that he has for them. Uh, not a love of a father who is saved, but a love of a father who has created, that he has towards his creation itself. Okay? Um, now, we know that there is a love prior to creation because it doesn't require God to have an object in order to love. And it doesn't require God to have an object in order to be loved, because the scripture tells us what God is, is love. So if God is love, that means by conclusion that God has loved prior to his creation. And then we can conclude then that God then, if there was no object of um, love outside of himself, then God loves self. So God didn't have to, he did not have to wait to express who he is, God is love for creation. So there was this Trinitarian love that he had, which is an, an affection for each other. So it's God's eternal affection for self is his love. And now what happens, now that there's creation, there are varying expressions of that love in creation. So we see a, a, a love that he might have for his creation in general, and then there's a particular redemptive love that he has for his people. And that love is expressed in all sorts of ways. We know that, say, for instance, um, we can say that if you go back to the Old Testament, um, and one of the most beautiful words in the Old Testament uh, is a word that we see, loving kindness, or at least the NASB translates it, loving kindness. At times, the word will be translated, steadfast love, um, covenant love. We'll see it translated um, one example might be, say, for instance, Psalm 136, every verse we see some testimony of God 
but then it says his loving kindness is everlasting. Let's just, just pay attention to that for a moment. I have more time, right? I do. This is great. Uh, let's go to Psalm 136. I just want you to see it. Um, and here is a manifestation of that love towards objects. So if we look, look to Psalm 136, every verse, what do we see? So here, if we note it in the 26 verses, every verse has what? His loving kindness is what? Everlasting. And notice what he, he goes through and he makes the statement first. Isn't it interesting? He starts off by saying, give thanks for the Lord for he is good. His loving kindness is everlasting. So we make a connection that says God's goodness then manifest is an expression of his loving kindness. And then if you would note verses 2 and verses 3, there's a connection between God's love expressed in that he is simply the God of gods and the Lord of lords. Therefore, he is a God of love. Verse 4, he's done wonders. Um, Verse 5, it's the heavens. Um, Well, 5 and 6 as well. And 7, he made the lights. The sun, verse 8. The moon and the stars, verse 9. So here, we know God's loving kindness is everlasting. We know he's a God of love because of his creation. Really what you would see in um, verses 5 through 9. And then here, historical examples of his love we see beginning in verse 10. He smote the Egyptians. He brought them out of their midst. That is the exodus. Um, He overcame them. Verse 13, he divided the Red Sea. They went through the midst of it. He overthrew Pharaoh. He took them through the wilderness. So we see that in verses 10 through 16. And then now we come into the promised land, verse 17, it begins there, right? Because what does he do? He smote the kings, he slew mighty kings. And this is nothing of just giving the account of the conquerings throughout the land of Canaan. And he goes through all of that. And he gave their land as an inheritance. And then in verse 23, now God has rescued them on many occasions. Verse 25, notice what it says. He gives food to what? All flesh. Then he says, give thanks to the Lord, the God of heaven. His loving kindness is everlasting. So those are the many manifestations of his love just right there in Psalm 136. So we see it simply from the fact of who he is. He's a good God, which then is a testimony of his love. And then we see it. Here's creation, a testimony of his love. Here he selects a chosen people, delivers them a testimony of his love. Now he takes care of all beings, a testimony of his love. Why does he do it? Ultimately, he does it to glorify himself. Why does he glorify himself? Because he loves himself. Something that we cannot do properly. We can't do it properly. Let me, if I can make a comment on that statement. Why do I say we can't do it properly? Sometimes people may say, say for instance... Um, they may say, well, uh, God hates, and I've heard this before and the reason I bring it up, uh, God hates, therefore we are called to hate as well. Uh, really? Um, David said he hated those who, you know, dishonor you, therefore I will follow David in that. Well, first, David's statement is the description. Uh, it is not a prescription for us. Secondly, 
we're not capable of what God is capable of. See, God is capable because he's a perfect God. All of his attributes work in perfect harmony. So God can also be a God of perfect wrath while also being a God of what would be the opposite. Perfect love or kindness or compassion. We're not capable of that. So he can, and that's a fascinating thing. And that's why with some certain theologians, that is a problem for them because they see that as a contradiction. And that's why even today you see certain theologians that would come up with ideas that they do not want to believe in a literal hell. Because what seems to be to them a contradiction is God cannot be a God of love and there be what? Eternal punishment. So hell is no longer literal. Or God cannot be a God of love and there be suffering. Therefore, there's some deficit in God, perhaps. But remember, we're dealing with perfection. And God can express every attribute he has in perfect harmony with others. And what are we doing? We're striving to imitate, but we fall short every day, do we not? I mean, that would be wonderful. And that's why Paul has to say at the end of Ephesians, as we saw, put away all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor. But do what? Forgive and forbear just as Christ. Because we're dealing with those very real things. And one of the motivations for it has to be the love of God and the love of God we see that they have for self. And if that's a unique relationship that they have, and we have a relationship that's unique, because remember now, here's another point that is really important. We are in Christ, and Christ is in us, is it not? And if we are in Christ, and Christ is in us, then now we need to love as the Trinity loves. Now, we will fall short, but that's our, that's our goal. So thank you for that question. Does that answer it? Okay, well, if you, you won more than you're out. All right, well, three strikes and you're out. But so you just, it's not quite a full count yet. Go ahead. Yeah, and that's an interesting point. And I think, no, not that I'm aware of. Um, Nothing that would say, like you see so much, particularly in John's gospel, the father loves the son and the son loves the father. We don't see any, and the father loves the spirit, and the son loves the spirit. Uh, What's implied by it um, is the fact that because we recognize the deity of the spirit, And we know the objective of the Spirit is to glorify the Son, which is clear in Scripture. And we see that the Father and the Son's love is connected to glorification, that we know that they love him as well. Because then the question would be, what's the reason for not loving the Spirit? He's a part of that perfect trinity. Absolutely. But still a reasonable question to ask. Any other question you have? Anything that we covered that has to do with the Trinity and love and our expression of it? Yes, right here. Yeah, that's a great question. Um, and the question is was there any point in time in the cross? when God is pouring his wrath in the sun, 
that that perfect love was disrupted. No. No, it was not. So the father loves the son throughout the cross because, remember, Christ said, for this hour I've come, this cup I must drink. And remember what he said in John's gospel, for this reason the father, what? The father loves me. So wait a minute. The father loves you for what reason? I'm about to go to the cross and bear all of his wrath. And for that he loves me. Which would mean then, as he is actually bearing the wrath of God, then his love for him remains the same. Yeah. Although in that moment, the moment of forsakenness is where some may think, well, in that moment, did the father stop loving the son? No. In that moment, in a way that, and I'm perfectly comfortable saying we cannot fully comprehend. It's not because, quote, I don't have an answer. Um, I don't know if there is one. Um, and perhaps if someone else is in the audience that has one, I'm more than willing to hear it, uh, or consider it at least, um, <clears throat> that in that moment of forsakenness, what ultimately was that? We know that it was real. And we can conclude, would conclude that in that moment, as Second Corinthians 5.21 says, he became sin for us. We know he's bearing the wrath for us. Isaiah speaks prophetically that all these burdens, he is going to be crushed, which means what was due everyone else, which is what Isaiah says, is laid on him. All we like sheep have gone astray, but the Lord has laid on him the what? The iniquity of us all. So in that moment, the father looks away from some way from the son, but yet loves the son. Yeah. Absolutely. Sure. So if we think about perfection, if God, you know, since God is a God of perfection in everything, there can be no variance in the expression of that perfection. Yeah. So I love the son. I don't love the son. I love the son. No, I love the son. Yeah. But in that moment of forsakenness, somehow, perhaps to a certain degree of mystery to us, but now he represents sin, I turn away. Which is an expression even of my love because I allow him to bear the sins of his people. And as he bears the sins of his people, then he will be glorified. And it will be, in fact, his, all will bow before his name and all will confess his name. Every creature will. Yeah, great question. The part two? Okay, I think I understand what you're saying. Let me repeat it to make sure. Would it help us appreciate the love of God more if we knew that perfect love was disrupted on the cross? Is that what you're saying? 
I'm not comfortable with it because here's the thing. I think we focus on what we know to be true about love. Uh, because in one sense, what we're doing now is let me present something to you that would make you understand and appreciate God even more than what Scripture does tell us. I think what we focus on is the fact that what did fall upon him was real wrath. It was sin. It, it is Second Corinthians 5.21. He became sin for us. It is the truths we see in Isaiah. It is what we see in John's gospel. And we appreciate that. Then we ask ourselves the question, and this is what we need to go back to. And let me make this statement. I think it would be helpful even for the things that I said. Um, that some people are confused as well when it comes to the love of God and they think about um, creation. Why did God create? And why is there a plan of salvation? And why is there a heaven? And some people become confused and they think, well, God did that because God wanted fellowship. So he created to have fellowship with us. And see, that's the beauty of Trinitarian love that that love is sufficient with one another. Unlike Adam, when he was created, God said what? It is not good for man to be alone. He's not complete. God is complete within himself. God has nothing outside of himself where he has to say, let me create uh, to satisfy something in us. They were satisfied in their love amongst one another. Why were they satisfied in their love amongst one another? Because it was perfect. Creation is simply a kind, loving act of God to say, I will create. And I will ultimately, again, it goes back to that thought. I know I probably, if I listen to this message, I've said it a hundred times, and I'm totally satisfied with that, that it is to glorify himself. So why, say, for instance, that even ties into why is there sin? God then allowed sin so that he would be glorified. In the same way, if you could think about it by way of sort of a, a, a scriptural, even illustration metaphor, God in the Exodus, why did God harden the heart of Pharaoh? The scripture tells that he would say what? He would be glorified in the nations. So God says, I love myself enough so that I want to glorify myself. I will harden the heart of Pharaoh. He will come after you. I will annihilate him, and then my fame will spread amongst the nations. Why? Because of self-love. It's perfect. Yeah. So God created not because there's a deficiency, because perfection can't have deficiencies. He created as an act of kindness and as a motivation to glorify himself. But that's also what's wrong with preaching nowadays and churches nowadays, is that it's all about us, isn't it? This is if God is, oh boy, I'm just, what do we do? I need to create people and I can be really satisfied now. And we make everything about us, do we not? When it's clear from scripture, it is about the glory of God. And Westminster, confession, and I agree with it. What is our chief end? What is the chief end of man? To go and to enjoy him forever. Heaven, then, is a taste of what should be here, that our focus is not on self, is it? Our focus is on the Son, the one to whom we will look, 
where there's not even need for us to have light. And we will be forever giving glory to the sun. What do the angels do in this very moment? They're crying out, holy, holy, what? Holy. It's the son. And so the father is pleased, the son. You go through the book of Hebrews and this language, and he sat down at the right hand of majesty because he was pleased with his offering. He sat down at that right hand of majesty. He was pleased with the son. But we've perverted things, and we make it so much about us. Yeah, and then errant doctrine comes from that as well. And that's why people have a problem with the idea even of election and God choosing. Yeah. So. All right, great. One last question, maybe. Do you have it? Have one? You got it all taken care of? Okay, very good. I thoroughly enjoyed that. Um, Hopefully you got something out of it as well. Uh, I learned a thing or two myself even as I taught it. And I love questions. I probably should have backed it up a little bit more because it just makes me in the moment. What do I believe in that moment, right? What do I believe? How do I articulate that? What is true? And so I love that sort of thing. And the Lord be with you. Um, Bask in this reality that God loves himself and he loves you. Why? Because God is love. That's a great truth. And as you deepen your theology, don't ever think that it's matured beyond that. Don't ever think that it's matured beyond just John 3.16, for God so loved. And why did he love? This love of self to glorify self. And let that motivate you in all your your thoughts and your actions. And be as Ephesians 5.1 says, be an imitator of God. Amen? Father, thank you for your goodness, grace, and mercy. Would ask that uh, you take what has been shared and use it. And despite me, um, make up the difference, I pray, Lord Jesus. In Christ's name, amen.